If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to 1 John chapter 5, uh, as we've been in a series called Vital Signs, looking at these marks of the Christian, the vital signs that faith in us is real, that our walk is a real walk. Now, there have been three reoccurring tests in 1 John. You remember what they are, congregation. First of all, there's a... Boy, this is overwhelming, right? Get your notes out, Sarah. There's a doctrinal test. It matters what we believe, that our faith is founded in what is reality in God. Not just knowing facts or information, but faith is founded in a personal relationship, knowing God, the the risen Christ, by faith. So there's a doctrinal test. And if we are believing rightly, then that will lead to the completion of a, a second mark or a second test, and that is the moral test that we will become obedient followers of Christ. We'll allow the Holy Spirit to do a search of our hearts so that we, that, that we'll, you know, that we will push and drive sin and allow the Spirit of God to drive sin out of our lives, take sin seriously, and we'll begin to walk in obedience to Christ in a daily kind of way. So that's the second test, the moral test. There's the doctrinal test, what we believe, what we do with what we believe, which is to act in obedience. And then the third test is? Sarah found her notes. Good girl. The relational test that we love. We love with agape love. Okay. And so we're going to, Chad did some preaching in, 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 Chapter 5, beginning with the first few verses last week. I'm going to read it again because it sets up the discussion for the day, beginning with verse 6. But we're going to read the first five verses. Because in the first five verses, John, as he has rounded the curve and in the home stretch, reminds us of those three marks, those three tests, once again, in those first five verses. Now, he does it in reverse order. He starts with love and then works back to obedience and then he works back to what we really have founded our life on in terms of belief. But would you read this with me? From verse 1, chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born, and and the Greek word there is from the, the root genos, has been born. We get the word genetic We get the word genealogy from that word. Has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, interestingly enough, it's not the familiar word in Greek for Father. It's the word, again, from the root genos, the engenderer, the one who engenders life, the one who gives life. Everyone who has, who, who, uh, everyone who is born of God and everyone who loves the Father, the genos, loves whoever has been born of Him. So by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey His commandments. You see, it's kind of reversed from the last time he said that, if you're paying attention. So he's kind of going in backwards order here. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus 
is the Son of God. Now it's apparent, as we have spoken earlier in this study of 1 John, that John is writing this first letter in response to an event in the churches there around Ephesus in sort of southwestern Turkey. There has been a departure. There's a whole group, and it, no doubt it was a formidable-sized group, who under the sway of false teachers, blinded by Gnostic heresy, have left the church and have abandoned faith. And so he is spurred into action to write this letter. And, and, and so William Hendricks, in his little commentary on these verses, in writing about verse 5, he says this, It is quite possible that verse 5 is to give assurance to a defeated, faithful few who have watched this, uh, the apparent victory of error over truth and in the success of false teachers have become discouraged. Nevertheless, John writes, despite all appearances... No one accomplishes this victory. No one overcomes, John says, unless he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so three times John in those verses used that word overcomes. He over, we overcome. We're, we're victorious. We're overcomers. Sometimes we don't feel that way. But we are. By faith, because our faith is founded and grounded in Jesus, the, the Son of God. So, um, so this week, this past week, Russell Wilson, quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks, has been in the news. Did you catch what went on this past week? He, he's one of America's best-known athletes, just negotiated a new contract with the Seahawks, a Super Bowl winning quarterback. He also happens to be a, a Christ follower, a devoted Christian. And he's not shy about expressing his faith in Christ, nor the practical consequences of that commitment to follow Christ. So last Sunday, he's, uh, he's interviewed on stage at a, at a large church in San Diego about his journey in football and his journey of faith and his conversation that Sunday morning got tweeted and Facebooked out and in the day of tweeting and Facebook it just went kind of viral for a while. You see, this, new, this, uh, this quarterback, this pro quarterback is, has been dating this pop star by the name of Ciara and he tells that congregation that they're not having sex. They're not sleeping together. And he's asked why, and he says, because, because the Lord instructed him to keep the relationship pure and to not sleep with her. Interesting, isn't it? He, he went further. 
Um, he was asked to elaborate on his decision to save the sexual relationship for marriage. And Wilson stated this, that he knows somehow that God has entrusted him and his girlfriend with influence. And he wants to use their platform, their influence for good. I quote, I knew that God had brought me into her life so that I could bless her and for her to bless me and so that we could bless many other people with the impact that she and I have. Nobody's perfect, he stated, but somehow God has anointed us to do something miraculous, something even special. Interesting, huh? And then he proved his point. Referring to sex before marriage, Wilson asked this. Can we really love each other without all that? And then he noted. If you can really love somebody without that, then you can really love somebody. You know, when I think about Russell Wilson, I don't know him personally, but I think he just passed the test. He just passed the test. He just indicated to a large audience of people holding himself accountable. He said, I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. Therefore, I obey his commands. And one of his commands is that I don't sleep around. That I save the sexual relationship for marriage. He says, because God has instructed that, then, then I am going to live as I'm instructed. I'm going to obey his command. And then he even goes even further. He says, he says, I am on a quest for a higher love. There is a love that's higher. And that's what I'm going for. He just passed the test. All three. The doctrinal test, the the you know the the moral test. And the relational test. But wait till you hear how Twitter and Facebook and the social media and even the national media responded to that. Man, they skewered him. Immediately the tweets and the, you know, the Facebook postings were, you know, were bashing Russell Wilson. He was ridiculed. Treated as some kind of a joke. Like he's some kind of ancient dinosaur or something. One commentator said, I think Americans value chastity in such a way that I find really silly and problematic and and counterproductive. Another chimed in, What's this with this American fascination with puritanical evangelical Christianity? Why, the only people that he's really hurting are himself and that Sierra gal. It was laughed at. It made national media. Good Morning America ran the story. And the commentators on Good Morning America, which Deb and I watch fairly often, concluded their comments this way. Well, whatever works for you. Jim, Jim Dennison, who's a guy I follow that I subscribe to his blog, and Jim Dennison writes these words. 
Those four words, whatever works for you, are America's mantra today. Whether it's same-sex marriage, premarital sex, euthanasia, smoking marijuana, cohabitating before, you know, the wedding. Our culture has decided that whatever you want is what you should do. Does that sound familiar? Guys, John writes in chapter 4, verse 4 of the letter, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. All right? Now, trust me, the world does not want you to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. As the only way to salvation. The world doesn't want you to believe that. And it doesn't want you to live a moral life. Don't put us on the spot by trying to live some kind of a moral life in front of us. We don't like that. You know, that that means you're a dinosaur. You know, you're out of step with the society and with the culture. And, And by the way, it's unloving. That's hateful if you do that. Because they don't want us to love. You see, because John says it later in... Chapter 5, that the world lies in is in captivity to the evil one. Listen, folks, Christianity has always been called not, not to go with the flow, with the current of the culture, but to swim against the culture, to swim upstream. Do you follow Let me tell you who the strongest fish are. The ones that swim upstream. I'm a fly fisherman. I, fished, I have fished a lot in, in trout ponds. I've caught a lot of fish in trout ponds. Rarely do I keep a fish, even if it's big, from a trout pond. You know why? Because the meat is soft. Because they're not strong fish. I mean, they, they live in a pond. And most of the time, somebody just takes some dog food and does this. And, 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 and they just come to the surface and eat dog food. And that's a picture. That's a picture of the American church. There are a lot of American churches that are going to just go with the flow, the current of the culture. But we're going to get stronger. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And we're going to walk by faith. We're going, to, we're going to obey Christ and we're going to love him, whether they like it or not. With agape love. And we're going to get stronger. The fish I like to catch, I like to wade in a freestone river, you know, with water rushing around me, you know what I'm saying? And I have to, you know, and I have to place that fly out there, you know, in just the right spot because, you know, because of the, because that current is drifting. And I want to catch that fish that's swimming upstream because he's strong and he will fight. And by the way, he's good eating. I don't know about you. I'm going to swim upstream. The culture can say, hey, whatever works for you, whatever you want. No. 
And I want to be a part of a church that's willing to swim upstream against the current of culture. Okay? And it's pretty simple. John says it's really pretty simple. You know, you, you put your faith and your roots down in Christ, and you just, and, and because the Spirit of God is in you, you, you begin to just to seek to obey Him. And bring your life before Him and obey Him. I'm saying, and so you read Scripture and you take Scripture seriously and you, you obey its teachings and, and you ask Him to teach you how to love with His kind of love, agape love, the kind of love that Jesus has. And, 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 and if we do that, we will, we will get stronger and we will be victorious no matter what the culture does. I just felt like I had to say that this morning. Okay? All right. Okay. Verse 6. Verse 6. All right, now, the scene changes here to a courtroom. Um, a courtroom. A couple of weekends ago, many of you know, I, I missed the ribbon cutting for our little uh, soft opening of the new digs here. Okay? And, and I really just want to, uh, you know, uh, commend uh, Kevin McCoy, our serving chairman of our elders, for doing a great job. You know, with the ribbon cutting. Thank you so much, Kevin. Um, but I got a phone call on Friday afternoon, and um, and my uncle Joe, who is just two months from turning ninety, has had gotten very sick, and had not gone to the doctor until Friday afternoon. The doctor's office was closing at five. He gets there like, or they wheeled him in in a wheelchair into the nurses' station there at the assisted living center at four p.m. And I get a call at five p.m. and see, I'm fourth on the list. You know, I'm the fourth call on the list, and and the first call is his son who was vacationing over in Norway. He was on, you know, was on some ship going up and down the fjord somewhere, you know, on a much-deserved vacation. And the second call would normally go to his daughter, who also lives in Austin, Texas, where my Uncle Joe lives. And, and she uh, happened 48 hours after her brother left on vacation, checked herself into alcohol detox. And so she was off the grid for about 10 or 11 days. And Joe didn't know where she was. And my sister was on a pontoon boat up in a lake up in Wisconsin. And so they called number four and I look around, there's no number five. <laughs> I did the right thing. I got, I got it in my car and I, and I, and I raced down to Austin and, and uh, and I, he was so sick, folks. I took my burying suit. I took my black suit and tie with me and my white shirt because I didn't know. I mean, I was just praying the whole way because they wanted him to go to the emergency room and he wouldn't go because he just said, I, I've made peace with my maker. I'm ready to die. Just take me back to my room. And I crept in, you know, about 930 that night into his room and I could see that he was breathing so I didn't wake him up. You know what I'm saying? And I... Spent the weekend nursing him back to health. But here's what you need to know, my Uncle Joe. Here's a picture of my Uncle Joe. There he is. And, and Uncle Joe is standing out front of the courthouse in Brady, Texas. Okay? My Uncle Joe was a West Texas lawyer. Back in the early 60s, he was elected as district judge and then became, or he was elected county judge. And then a few years later was elected district judge. And then he finished his career in Austin, Texas, as appointed as a state judge by uh, some Democratic governor, woman, 
some years ago. Okay? That's Judge Joe. Familiar with the courtroom. And the reason I like this picture, show the next picture. This is the courtroom in Brady, Texas, where Joe was the, was the county judge. We grew up in the same hometown, born in the same place, Coleman, Texas. And, uh, and about five or six years ago, the State Historical Society gave the courthouse in Brady, Texas, $2 million because they wanted to restore the courtroom to its 1899 furnishings and feel. And so they did a tremendous historical restoration of the old courtroom. And, and uh, last fall, while my, my Uncle Joe was in a little better shape, you know, health-wise, before the pancreatic cancer came on, uh, we made a trip out to Coleman and Brady, and we went to the courthouse. Show that other picture. And so, uh, and naturally, when John took us into the courtroom, I thought about Michael Joe this week, who had just been with, and, uh, and I thought about, in that courtroom, does that not look like something right out of uh, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird? You know, I, I just can't wait. Someday I'm going to be watching some old movie, you know, of former times, and they'll, you know, the camera crew will have gone into the courthouse there in Brady and, you know, and made a movie out of that. But John is going to take us into the courtroom. And before we read this, the key vocabulary word here is, is the word testify or testimony. And it's from the Greek, the noun martyria, or the verbal form of that is martyreo. And it's used 10 times in verses 6 through 12. And so it's our key word. And so John is taking us into the courtroom because, because a case is about to be made for belief in, in Jesus Christ. Okay? And John is going to call three witnesses. Put up the next slide if you would. He's going to call his three witnesses. The water, the blood, and the spirit. Water mentioned four times in verses 6 through 8. Blood three times and the spirit three times in these verses which we are about to read. So start with verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. And so the first witness that John calls is a witness to the baptism of Jesus. The word water here appears now four times, you see. Now some take this as a reference to the water of physical birth, the breaking of water at physical birth. There's some commentators who uh, will read into this a reference to the water that flowed with blood out of the side of the crucified Christ when the soldiers went to verify his death and they placed, they, they, they jabbed the spear in his side. And John, it was John's gospel after all, chapter 19, that records that the water, that water flowed out with the blood. And so some commentators want to make much of that. There, 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 there are some that even take a different facet of this. Luther and Calvin, uh, uh, the Reformers, connected um, this verse, there are these verses, to the sacred ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper for believers or communion for believers. 
However, the historical context here, that of John refuting the Gnostic heresy, Gnostic teaching, and particularly that of the false teaching of a, of a Gnostic um, leader named Serenthus, who taught that, that Christ's spirit, or the spirit of the anointed one, descended on the man Jesus at his baptism while he was in the wilderness with John. But he abandoned him. The Spirit abandoned him as he hung on the cross before he died. So in effect, this Gnostic teacher who was prominent in that day was teaching that this human named Jesus, this young rabbi was adopted as the Son of God, a Son of God, at his baptism to become a a messenger and a prophet of God. That Jesus was not the incarnation of, of God in flesh, born into the world, the only begotten monogenes, the only begotten son of the Father. It was the teaching of the Gnostics that, see, Jesus was adopted into the family and then abandoned on the cross. Sort of like a failure. And John refutes that. No, the baptism is a witness. It's the first witness Faithful witness to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, all four Gospels record Jesus' baptism. Because it's that important. It's that hugely significant. But I love John's Gospel. Because after Jesus is baptized by John, and you'll remember in the Gospels, it says that when Jesus came up out of the water, that the that there was a visible sign that the heavens were opened up, was sort of just were torn apart. Mark's gospel says, were just torn open, and the voice of God was heard. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then we know from the gospels that Jesus immediately was driven into the wilderness to be tempted for forty days and forty nights. Okay. Now, what John does for us is, John helps us understand what John the Baptist was doing all that time Jesus is out there being tempted. Okay? Because, you know, Jesus is out there being tempted. John the Baptist has 40 days to try to figure out what he just saw happen. Because he just saw the heavens open. He just heard the voice. They heard this voice from God affirming Jesus as his only begotten son. And then he saw the Spirit descend upon him in the form of dove. And so when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, 40 days later, listen to what John says. You ready? So John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to all of Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remains on him. Meno remains, one of the key words used over 40 times in 1 John. It remains on him. I myself did not know him, but
But he who sent me to baptize with water said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, the Spirit of God, the presence of God was manifested at the baptism of Jesus as he initiated his ministry. As he, the very first thing that happens in his earthly ministry, he's baptized. And, the, and, and, and testimony is given to who he is supernaturally at his baptism. The second witness John calls is the crucifixion. Now, I am hearing like popping. Is that, I'm sorry about that, folks. You know, the devil would kind of like to mess us up here today. I get that. Okay. Hang in there. The second witness he calls is the crucifixion. So three times he uses the word blood. Okay. And the saving work of Jesus was initiated at baptism and it was finished where? It was finished on the cross when Jesus cried out to Telestai. It is finished from the cross. When he died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, for your sins and mine and even for the whole world. God the Father provided a significant testimony at his death. Matthew 27 lists at least four, you know, four manifestations of God. Three hours of pitch black darkness from noon until 3 p.m. Unexplainable, mysterious darkness. Okay, so at his crucifixion, God manifested his presence in four ways. Matthew writes, chapter 27, three hours of pitch black darkness, okay? Uh, and, then, and then Matthew tells us in, 20, in, verse, in chapter 27 that the 80-foot high curtain of the temple sanctuary, that which, which separated from all the rest of the temple, the holy holies of God, where the mercy seat of God was, the curtain, that thick curtain was torn from top to bottom at the moment of Christ's death. And there was a massive, third, there was a massive earthquake and, and the earthquake near that of Jerusalem opened up graves. And Matthew records that there were sightings of resurrected saints, the first fruits of the resurrection, all that had been promised, this, you know, this incredible kind of a happening. And, and, then, and then Matthew records for us that there was a, a hardened Roman soldier who stood and watched all of the proceedings and had overseen all of the proceedings of Jesus' death. And after witnessing the death of Jesus, he stood at the foot of the cross and he said, this man truly was the Son of God. The Son of God. So John calls the witness, not only of Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry, but at the end, God was there in full force to, you know, say, to demonstrate that Jesus was his anointed son, fulfilling his will, carrying out his plan and purpose to redeem you and I from the cross. And then there's a third witness, and that is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity, and we have seen that he is alongside all along the way, you know, from the moment of Jesus, even Jesus' conception, you know, through his early ministry, his baptism, the Spirit consistently bears witness both in his baptism and in his death in verses 6 through 8. 
The heavenly father in verse 9 calls himself also to affirm the son. In verses 10 through 12, the believer has this inner confirmation provided by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling spirit, that Jesus is the Christ who lives within, whom they know in their hearts. So it's the spirit, John says, who adds to the testimony of these first two because the spirit is the spirit of truth. He doesn't, doesn't just know the truth. He is truth, John says. And interestingly enough, the tenses, both tenses in, the, in, in this verse are in present tense. So there's a continuation of this. It's not just that the Spirit bore witness then, but the Spirit continues in the work assigned to him to bear witness. And Jesus said it in John chapter 14, I must return to the Father, and when I return to the Father as is necessary, then I will be able to send the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit to come in full force into your lives. And we don't have time to discuss fully what, you know, what the the, the work of the Spirit is, but, but I could mention three things just real quick. One of them is, is Jesus said in John 14 that when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness, righteousness and judgment. The, the Spirit will, will convict us of our need for Christ because we, he, he causes us to recognize that we are sinners. He will convict us of Christ's righteousness, that there is a righteousness outside of ourselves which we need, which is Jesus Christ. And he will convict us of judgment that if we do not act upon the truth that we have heard in Jesus and seen in Jesus that we will stand before him one day in judgment. The Spirit will come in that way to do that kind of work in the world. But he also says that the Spirit also within us will guide us into the truth. That that's the Spirit's role is to bring to, not only to bring to remembrance all of the things that Christ spoke in his ministry, but you know, to help us to recall, but also to guide us into into truth, into the understanding, the truth of, of Scripture. Not just the flat reading of Scripture, but with the help of the Holy Spirit to be taught by God himself in the Scripture. And the Spirit, the Spirit, Jesus says, issues, um, issues forth in us ministry. The, the, the Spirit of God is what will continue the ministry of Jesus in and through our lives as he comes bearing gifts. He gives spiritual gifts to every believer for us to unpack. Jesus says, Jesus says, greater things than I have done, you will be able to do because I go to the Father. And, and wow, greater things? Are you kidding? But Jesus says, yeah. Because when I live inside you, I'm going to multiply myself like thousands of times. And you're going to have me living inside you. And so, you know, I can only be one place at one time. I'm going to be all over the place if you let me live in and through you. And I'm going to give you gifts of ministry. And as you unpack those gifts and you use those gifts to the glory and honor of God, then we're going to build the kingdom of God. We build the kingdom of God together. We connect up as the body of Christ, everyone with differing gifts, so that we, so that we can respond and relate to the world as Jesus did in a loving and caring you know, kind of way. So the Spirit of God is, is active in us, present tense, still doing all of those things. And then we come to verse 9. Now, you talk about courtroom drama. Anybody here watch Perry Mason growing up? Bad, I just really date myself. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
I think you can still get Perry Mason on rerun somewhere, I'm sure. Man, I, I like the guy, man. He, he never lost a case. Have you ever noticed? You know, and, and, and I, I think that might be what John is inferring here in verse 9. There's a surprise witness. After calling three witnesses, um, and, and all three of those witness, witnesses giving corroborating testimony, he calls, God calls himself as a witness. He puts himself on the stand. Read verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has himself. God has borne concerning the Son. And so John employs a common logic here, a, a lesser than lesser to greater kind of an argument for the sake of his readers. He says, in the everyday affairs of men, you accept the, the testimony of men in your courts. And according to Deuteronomic law in, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it, you had to have at least two or three corroborating, agreeing witnesses for something to be established as fact or as a, a truth. And, and so John is saying, so here, God has presented three witnesses that agree, and now God himself testifies. And who is greater and who is more faithful, who is truer than God himself? That's his logic. And then in verse 11, John states the purpose. John states the reason that God would put himself through all this effort to prove himself to us. In verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So whoever has The Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. The purpose was that he might bestow on us eternal life by believing in Jesus, resting our faith squarely and solely on him. John reiterates three things that he said before in the letter already about eternal life. This life, he says, is a gift. God gave eternal life. It's a gift. It cannot be earned. It cannot be, you know, it cannot be worked for. It can only be received as a gift. And, and then John says, and it's experienced in reality only in Jesus Christ, the Son. There's only one way that you receive and you know the eternal life, and that is in the Son. And then he says, thirdly, It is already here. It is now. Eternal life begins the moment you place faith in him. You receive the life of the spirit, the resurrected life of Jesus and his spirit in you. Wow. So there's only one question left to be asked. Do you have Jesus? Because if you have Jesus, you have eternal life. If you don't have him, 
that he's all you need. If you don't have him, you don't have what you're really looking for, deep down what you're really looking for. At the end of the interview, Russell Wilson sort of bows his head and he humbly asked those who are listening to that interview to pray for him. He said, please pray that I will keep my biblical commitment. That I will keep my commitment to God so that my life and my influence will honor him. I'm, I'm praying for Russell Wilson. And I'm praying for that CR lady. I don't know who she is. And I'm praying for you that you'll be willing to swim upstream. That you won't go with the flow and the current of the culture. But you'll, you will lock on to the face of Christ. You will lock on to him, focus on him, because he's all you need in this world. He is the overcomer, and we attach ourselves to his victory, and we overcome. And so we're going to put our faith in him, and we're going to obey him, and we're going to love him even if they don't like it. Will you pray with me? I just simply would ask, Father, that you would speak to any heart here. We've said already that the Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world of sin and righteousness. And that might come down to someone here who just needs to face the reality of, of what sin has done in a destructive work in their lives to destroy their relationship with God, even to, to inhibit and to destroy relationships with folks that really matter to them. And, and so this would be a day, an opportunity, simply to receive Christ as Savior and as Lord, as he is depicted by John, the Son of God, Messiah, Savior, and Lord.